And I'm very proud of it that Christian Aid was one of the first international development organizations that started to talk about climate change because we defined it as a social justice issue. It is the people who had the least responsibility for it that are suffering most. And that became the core of our message. And, and we, got, we got the churches on board. It's a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Okay, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, uh, who will introduce himself. Paul, please go ahead. Yes, hello, uh, Boris, and hello, listeners. My name is Paul Valentin. I'm uh, a recently retired uh, development professional. I, uh, I, until 2019, I worked with the British agency Christian Aid as the international director. But um, maybe to start with, um, like Morris, um, I'm from Holland. I, um, I started my career in international development and actually it was a choice I made very early on. I was still in, uh, in high school. I, I wanted to do something that involved um, improving the lot of people who didn't have it very good in life, but that also involved working in Africa or Asia or Latin America, somewhere where it was not Europe and it was not Holland. And um, I chose uh, my, my studies on the basis of uh, sort of that, that idea that Actually, I wanted to become an anthropologist, but then I found out that it takes, it took in those days seven years to be a qualified anthropologist in the Netherlands. And, um, and I chose um, tropical agriculture instead because there was a three and a half year course that I could do and that would qualify me as a tropical agriculturist. And I was quite uh, attracted by that idea. So, I, uh, I graduated from, from uh, tropical agriculture, and in 1978, I um, left for Kenya, Africa, as an agricultural volunteer with the Dutch Volunteer Organization. And I worked as an agricultural advisor in uh, settlement schemes uh, that were set up shortly after independence in Kenya. And I did that for three and a half years at the time of my life. I really enjoyed it, mm. worked directly with farmers, um, learned a lot, um, was exposed to a lot of different situations, um, had my own uh, issues with, uh, I did everything by, mot by motorbike and I had quite a serious motorbike accident. But anyway, I got over that. And um, so I had three and a half years of wonderful a wonderful time in Kenya. Um, and then when it came to renewing my contract, I, want, I wanted to continue this kind of work. 
But I also felt like, look, this is great to do, but it gives me a lot of satisfaction, but it doesn't ultimately doesn't change anything because these farmers were at the receiving end of very inadequate government services. Um, and they were suffering structural poverty. And although I could help them improve their, their harvest and I could help them uh, gain a better price for some of their products, I couldn't change the system around them. And I felt like if I go again as a volunteer, I want to work uh, in a different setting. And that uh, I, I put it to the organization that uh, sent me out. And I said, look, uh, I'd, I'd love to have a second contract, but send me somewhere where what I do is more leads more to, to, to structural change. And um, they said, well, we just have this new program uh, that works with NGOs. And it was kind of a, a term I was hardly familiar with at the time, non-governmental organizations. And they worked in, um, in, in those days in Peru and in the Philippines with non-governmental organizations. Elsewhere, it was always with the government. And um, I said, yes, okay, I'll, I'll sign up for that. Um, and then they said, well, um, if you want to go to Peru, you have to be ready in two weeks' time. And I said, no, I can't do that. I, 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 I had a hard time leaving Kenya um, uh, shortly before I left. My house burned down in Kenya, and it was quite traumatic. And um, I felt like, no, I, I shouldn't go straight into a new situation. I need to get Kenya out of my system first. And then they said, well, if you can wait for half a year, there will be a position coming up in the Philippines. And um, that's how I ended up in the Philippines in uh, 1982. And um, I worked there with an, a local NGO uh, in the north of the country uh, that focused on the indigenous communities of northern Luzon. Um, but I was also told it's a very political setting that you end up. Mm -hmm. And that was not an understatement because within no time, I had figured out that the entire area where we worked was a rebel-held uh, territory um, where the indigenous people were basically in an uprising against the Marcos regime. And uh, But there was a lot of work to be done, a very fascinating cultural setting. And uh, I did that. And... Um, I sort of came to accept the politics of it all as well. It uh, made it quite exciting, sometimes a bit too exciting, I would say, but uh, no regrets whatsoever that I did make that choice. Um, I also met my wife there. Um, I was working in tribal villages with, uh, with my work as an agriculturist. My wife was working with a medical NGO, a Philippine NGO, uh, and as a nurse and um, well, that's where we met, yeah. and um, so got married in uh, 1984, um, lived and worked in the Philippines until 1989. Our son was born there, and then we left for Holland totally unplanned because the situation where we were living became too dangerous. Hmm. Friends of ours were killed. Um, wow. Waking up in the morning to gunfire is not what you what you sign up for and, mm -hmm. and thinking certainly of, of the security of 
our young family and my, my two-year-old son, we decided to go back to Holland. And so we found ourselves totally unprepared back in Holland in 1988. And then I was unemployed, looking for work. Um, I needed to have a bit more income than the volunteer contracts allowed me until mm -hmm. that time. And I applied with the British agency Oxfam mm. uh, to be their country manager in the Philippines. I, while I but could, that would mean you had to go back. Yeah, right? but it, this meant going back to Manila and not to the uh -huh. tribal villages okay. where okay. I had been living. And um, so for four years, I was the country manager for Oxfam in the Philippines. Again, great time, really enjoyed it. And then our daughter also was born then, and we realized, look, we can do this for a long time. Um, my wife and I, we were both enjoying ourselves, but growing up in Manila for our children was a very mixed blessing. Um, the, the, the quality of the air you inhale on a daily basis is the equivalent to smoking a few packs of cigarettes. And you don't want to do that to your children if you have a choice. Many people don't have a choice. We had a choice. So we made a choice to look for another job, but not go back to Holland because that would mean easier for me and difficult for my wife who have to mm -hmm. learn a language and everything, mm -hmm. looking for an, uh, a job in a third country. And the opportunity came about in uh, 1993 to go to, um, to the headquarters of Oxfam in Oxford. Um, and become a regional manager for East Asia. And that's what I was there for, for another few years. Actually, I was uh, in that role between 1993 and 2000. When my job came to an end because of restructuring, all the offices were moving or the, the senior positions were moving abroad, um, I did not have the opportunity to join that in, in initially and um, did an interim job. I was in India for uh, half a year and then coming back to basically no job in, in Oxford, I applied with Oxford America for the um, role as the head of programs, so the vice president for programs with Oxford America in Boston, um, which I got. So from um, 2001 to 2004, I was in the U.S. and I look back with um, on what I think was a very good time. I really enjoyed it, except that my first day at work was 9/11. So the first day at work, the world changed, and that certainly affected our plans for the family to join me and things like that. That never happened. So I, okay. for the best part of three years, I commuted between Boston and Oxford once a month. Saw my family once a month, um, build up a carbon footprint that I will never get rid of, no matter how many trees I plant. Um, but anyway, it, it worked for me in, in those days, and I was with Oxfam until 2004, desperate then to come back to the UK to be with my family. And I got a job as the International Director of Christian Aid in London, which I did until I retired in 2019. So that's in short my life story from a professional uh, background. 
I think I gradually fell into management. Uh, the role, obviously, with Oxfam in the Philippines was as a country manager, building a team. But ultimately, I started with only one member of staff. Mm-hmm. I left and I had a dozen staff. Um, and then I became the regional manager. And that meant managing country programs at a distance all over Southeast Asia. And um, actually discovering that it's something I really enjoy, managing mm-hmm. and working with people. And that has subsequently been my my career was in senior management in a non-governmental organization. So mm-hmm. that in short is it. Yeah. Uh, my retirement was unplanned. I became quite ill and I had to stop working. Thankfully, my health is back to uh, a decent level. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm currently looking at uh, what is there for me to do without really taking on a job and I have some possibilities opening up for me in the in the near future. And, and just for the listeners, you and I, we know each other, you know, because our organizations, you know, at that time for you, Christianate, uh, well, uh, the listeners know I work for CWS, you know, we had this partnership going and that's how we uh yeah started to work together and also our, our friendship uh, developed which i i really appreciate um paul i i would like to you know you were talking about retirement if you you know you had time probably to look back at you know all those different experiences and everything you've done so if you have to pick you know something that you're proud of uh, what would you mention um i am proud of the fact that I have been able to work with young professionals who subsequently became leaders in their own right, um, who many of whom are currently in senior positions in national and international NGOs. I'm certainly not claiming that that was my doing because I think they did it because they had the, the talent and the capacity, but I'm very proud that I played a role in um, at a time in their life that they had to also decide what to do next and that uh, I I worked with them in those days and uh, that they have uh, subsequently developed themselves into good leaders and uh, senior leaders as well. That I certainly take pride in. The other thing I would say is um, what I learned from the very first job until the last job that I did is that if you're in development work, if you're into sort of charity work, as they say here in Britain, um, there's very, there's always the temptation to do things for people. There's the temptation to give people things that they need and give yourself the, the illusion that you've therefore helped them. My lesson in life is that um you are only successful if by working with people you enhance their agency so they become actors in their own uh in their own lives that they have the confidence and in some instances overcome incredible barriers to to develop that ability to seize hold of their own destiny but it is um, development without that kind of a vision, I think, is empty 
um, there is a role for that and it's called um, welfare and it is where people really are totally without resources and totally without hope. But if you want to work with people on a slightly longer and more sustainable basis, you have to work with them on what are the what barriers keep them from developing into that individual that that has um, inherent rights, inherent abilities to to take control. And whether that is someone with a severe disability or someone born into poverty or someone from a, an outcast uh, background in India, I think that doesn't matter. Ethnicity, race, sexuality, all those things uh, def help define that individual, but that doesn't mean that they are therefore determined to be a victim or determined to be passive or determined to be um, a recipient of, of aid. They can be actors in their own development. I, I know I, I really appreciate that you you mentioned that because I, I do think that you know often uh, NGOs and uh, you know also in in their work around uh, efficacy is you know we would like to create an environment where people in need uh, you know that we increase their voice and choice but then agency is often forgotten is you know it's not being worked on so I I, I totally agree with you uh, there. I do want to piggyback on, on actually something you said around your, you know, flying back and forth when you were working in the States and your carbon footprint. And then you also mentioned sustainability. While we are talking, you know, it started last week and next week, uh, no, this week and then next week as well is COP26 in Glasgow, yeah. close to where you live. Well, relatively close to, <laughs> from my point of view in here in, in the States. Um, yeah, but, 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 you know, what what do you hope uh, will happen at, at COP26? And, and um, you know, I, I, I know that Christian Aid and, and other organizations that you worked for have always uh, been very vocal around, you know, climate change and, and uh, you know, uh, the Paris Declaration, et cetera. So, um, yeah, can you share? Yeah, well... I, I need to fight my own pessimism here um, because I, I, I observe what's going on in, in, in Glasgow at the moment and the lofty statements being made, including by people who don't believe, I think, in, in really making profound changes. But looking back, I have to be an optimist because we've seen system shift and we have seen governments shift and um i we have to be optimist because the alternative is pretty grim really um i think the world has a chance to uh to make a u-turn very last minute it will not be brought about because of the leadership shown by countries that have traditionally been seen as taking a lead. It will be because of citizen actions. It will be because we discover the power we have as consumers. It will be because um, of the way that our pensions are invested. It will be because we look at our, our, our children and now I can pr I'm proud to say my grandchildren in the eyes and, 
and and I wish for them that um, they have a future where where there is a world out there that is beautiful, that is worth protecting, that is absolutely worth fighting for. But um, yeah, in my darker moments, I, I'm less of an optimist now. I'm I'm really um, quite pessimistic. If you see countries like Australia fighting tooth and nail against changing anything in the way they do business until recently thankfully now in the us there's a slight there's a change of direction but under trump certainly a total abandonment of leadership and and going actually in the opposite direction um it it is it is a careful balance that we have to build collectively across borders uh, because a change of government, and actually the main problem, I think, is that we are all caught in election cycles, which are short term, which means that politicians will ultimately always go for short term solutions. Well, we need to look at long term solutions here. So until politicians are held accountable by the next generations and the generations to come, um, I think it, it, we are up against uh, great odds. Although I believe also that in some instances, uh, citizens are discovering the power of legal action to actually force governments to do more than they are prepared to do purely on the basis of their promises to a short-term electorate. Um, and, and we've seen that in a number of countries that governments have to tighten up the rules and have to come within closer, sharper targets on climate change because in the courts they have lost out. And this I think is very much people doing it on behalf of future generations. Listening closely to you, what I um, am trying to help our listeners uh, always with is Issues like climate change, you know, COVID, poverty, etc. They all seem so big to tackle. But when I was listening carefully to you, there are things as individuals, as consumers, as citizens that we can do, you know, ourselves that will, you know, positively contribute to get this yeah. world, you know, closer in the direction. I mean, voting is one, uh, of course. Um, yeah, I would like to to talk with you about uh, the next generation. I mean, you you're, you you were alluding to you know that you're a proud granddad. Um, if we look at your children, you know, at the younger generation in in the in the community where you live, what do you see happening around uh, religion and spirituality? And I'm asking this because you know this podcast is a spin-off yeah. of, of my hundred mile walk, where I always talk with people about this. You know, what's the purpose in life? So, what do you see happening in in uh, in your community? Well, in terms of organized religion, youth are largely absent, which I do regret, but I also don't find at all surprising. Um, I think the churches stand out as in their ability to to keep young people away from them um, by holding on to dated concepts, by holding on to values that are not of this day and age. But I don't want to judge the younger generation. I do think that um, in the choices that younger people make, in the, um, yeah, the, 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 in a very complex environment, making ethical choices and making moral choices 
that ultimately are not necessarily for their own benefit, but, but for wider benefit, for people taking up the struggles of the homeless, people taking up um, the fight for refugees and asylum seekers, uh, young people fighting climate change. I think that has a very strong spiritual aspect to it because it's still believing that there's more to life than only pursuing your own your own immediate interest. It's not only about my my personal well-being. It's not only about my what I own and what I what I how I can earn money. It's also very much about how can I be uh, a responsible citizen and how can I be a good neighbor to um, to other people, whether they live physically next door to me or indeed whether or they live in a refugee camp on the borders of Europe or something like that. So I do think young people make choices that in my language and in my experience would be expressed more along the lines of faith and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't ascribe that to them, but mm-hmm. I do feel that for as long as people make moral choices in in a world that tells them to be materialistic, to be... Ego, egoistic a world that tells people to that there's only one thing that matters and that is you you yourself um i find it very hopeful that young people are in the forefront of many of these critical battles hmm. yeah you know both of us we've worked for what are uh, considered to be faith-based organizations. You know, you worked for Christian Aid, I worked for Church World Service. Um, and, but you also worked for, for Oxfam, um, yeah. which has a different background. Yeah, what, what is, according to you, are, are there any differences between the faith-based organizations or the more secular NGOs? Yeah, can you, can you give your observations around that? Um, well, the, obs- the, the differences are not as stark as people would want them to be. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, in an organization like like Oxfam, you would meet a lot of people who are also driven by their own beliefs. Mm-hmm. Some are committed Christians or committed Muslims, or they 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 believe that they are not on this earth to do uh, well for themselves, but actually to serve others. Uh, so you'd find that in secular organizations as well as faith-based organizations. What I particularly liked and, and really fully enjoyed when I was working for Christian Aid as a Christian organization is that it allows you to tap into a different discourse. Uh, for example, when we started to talk about climate change in Christian Aid, um, we first did the theology. We first looked at it sort of what, what would be the foundations for us uh, talking about this. And then you find yourself being able to root yourself in, in very deep uh, and, and, and ancient spiritual traditions, mm-hmm. um, which also came to the conclusion that we have to look after our environment um, as stewards and not as or the exploiters. Um, again, I, I, I feel that an organization like Oxfam or a secular organization can also do it, but the added value of doing, looking at the, the spiritual aspects of um, 
climate change or we did it with, with tax and tax avoidance. Um, it's great to go into a campaign on tax avoidance if you've done your homework with the Bible in one hand. Not that you have to hit people around the head with the Bible, but there's an awful lot of interesting and inspiring stories that you can build on to, um, to then subsequently run a campaign and, and talk about these issues and um, being able to reach out to people who may not, who may share the tradition, but who do not necessarily look at these issues in the same way. So that has been very, very empowering. And I'm very proud of it that Christian Aid was one of the first international development organizations that started to talk about climate change because we defined it as a social justice issue. It is the people who had the least responsibility for it that are suffering most. And that became the core of our message. And, and we, got, we got the churches on board. They were not ready to jump in necessarily, not all of them at least, um, but um, because we spoke their language, because we had done our homework, we were influential. And I, in some ways, now that I'm out of that, it's what I miss is that, that, that regular reflection on greater themes in society where we can um, be more effective and more influential if we have done, if we do our homework first based on a theological reflection or study, yeah. Hmm. Trying to to bring a couple of topics together is is um, you know when you speak about because we spoke the language, um, you know when. Because you, what I understood from you, okay, you, you you see that the younger generation is not necessarily attracted to institutionalized religion. Um, what does that mean for faith-based organizations then? You know, uh, like CWS, and and so how do should they ensure that they will continue to connect with the younger generation as well to be able to you know uh, raise their voice and do their work? I firmly believe that. Um it would serve the churches well if they were to look more at organizations like CWS and Christian Aid as, uh, as, as the means to engage with different younger generations because um, um, the traditional base of, of, of Christian Aid and CWS um, may be shrinking or is, is shrinking. And we know that um, church attendance is in decline, organized religion is, is certainly in decline in the Western world. But um, I think we have it within our gift to, to use a more modern language and to, to link with, with people, if you want to make the link between faith and the struggles that people find themselves in, the solidarity that that offers, the the, mm. the worldview that that can be enriched by that. Um, I'm not saying that 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 CWS and Christian Aid should take it upon themselves to revitalize the mainstream Protestant churches. I don't think that that would be that would be a rather arrogant assumption. But I do feel that um, working more closely together. Um, would potentially give them new entry points with younger people, younger generations. Um, 
Yeah, I may be a bit naively optimistic there, but I, I think that 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 would be uh, they would be well advised to look in that direction more. Uh, to be honest, also I think that for the life of the churches and the social engagement of churches in in Great Britain, particularly the smaller denominations which did not have the luxury of large offices with lots of staff, they looked at organisations like Christian Aid as sort of a lifesaver because. They provided content, content to sort of season, seasonal appropriate messaging, etc. Um, but when it comes to it, unfortunately, the churches make narrow choices on the basis of how can we keep our flock together. It's not about how do we widen out to others, how do we reach out, build bridges. It is still trying to 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 steer the flock into the into the pews within their own churches and. I mean that's a declining game, honestly, and I, I would I would be a great I am a great believer in ecumenical collaboration and looking beyond the boundaries of a congregation, beyond the boundaries of a denomination, but actually to to do things in a more inclusive way. Oh, that's that's actually that is really um, helpful for for my organization. You know, we, we celebrate our 75th anniversary this year and there's a lot of reflection going on. And, you know, one topic is, of course, you know, how do you connect in a better way with the younger generation? Another topic uh, for us to look at if we are doing well or not, how should we do better is around racial justice. And, and so, Paul, I would like to ask you a question around that. So if you look at the NGO sector as a whole, and I know it's difficult to, to uh, generalize, you have to be careful with that, but I'm still going to ask you the question. You know, how do you think the NGO sector has done around racial justice and how, it, how is it doing um, you know, at present? Oh, it's, it's a tough one. I was, mm. I was uh, worried that you would ask the question because I don't think I have an easy answer to it. I think on balance, you'd find the majority of NGOs and certainly the majority of people working in NGOs acting with the best of intentions and certainly around racial justice. But we, and I would include myself in that, um, have failed to adequately internalize what it means to be on the receiving end of racial injustice. Uh, particularly where we are predominantly white, historically predominantly male. Um, we may have the best of intentions, but we don't have the lived experience of our, or the, we are not confronted with our own privilege all the time. It is only through, by listening to others and by, by really going out of our ways to, to understand what drives people, that we have a standard chance of actually learning more about their experience. I mean, in many ways, I've benefited from my being white in, in a foreign context because doors would open for me, uh, not on the basis of the fact that I was a better human being and I had more superior knowledge, but because I was a white face and probably represented power and wealth and money. Um, it's not very comfortable to remind yourself of that, but I keep telling, and certainly when I was working, I kept telling that to people, always remember if you are holding on, if you're having funds, uh, access to funding, you are the gatekeeper to 
success. And therefore, people will never give you the feedback that you're looking for because they will give you the feedback in such a way that they get from you what they think they can get from you. Now, that is a bit of a convoluted way to come to the issue of white privilege. But I, I do think that certainly in our sector, that is an area of where there's a lot of blindness that we, we think we are doing well because people tell us that we are doing well. But they will not tell us where we are failing because that would then become an obstacle in, in, in the path to achieving their, out, their desired outcomes. To change it slightly, um, I, I, of course, only at a distance witnessed all the, the Black Lives Matters issues in the United States and having lived in, in the US for three years, I feel very strongly attached to things going on there. Um, but similar struggles are taking place in this country. And I know there is a pushback, a strong pushback, chills in this country against this woke notion. Um, but uh, until we realize, and people like myself, until we realize that I can walk down the street and people look at me as just another white bloke, an elderly white bloke. But walking down that same street, there may be a young black man who is looked at as he sort of people automatically have an assumption about what he stands for or unspoken, the fear that he might be a mugger or he might be someone out to get my money, which, or worse, which is totally wrong. But we need to recognize that, that the whole of society is totally entrenched with that kind of thinking. The judicial system is biased against certain people because of their ethnicity, because of their race. The, the social media, the, the, whatever aspect of life you talk about, probably the churches as well, um, we, there is a lot of um, unspoken bias that is very uncomfortable to confront, but I think it can be very liberating if we confront it. Sorry, I don't know if I make sense there, but um, yeah, I, 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 it is something that we can't say, oh, I'm fine because I've never discriminated against someone. No, 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 no. Even I have been part of structures and systems that have perpetuated actions and beliefs that haven't helped people we're struggling necessarily and um, we need to do better. No, thanks for that. But what, what if you, if you then would have, you know, a piece of advice for, you know, NGOs like, like mine, what should we start doing in a better, uh, a better way? And, and one thing is, you know, being aware, listening, um, you know, uh, what else in the way we work, right? So... Um, well, in Christian Aid, I, I've tried to make a bit of a, a change there. But it must, I, I left before that could really bear any fruit. But we use the term partnership very lightly. We always talk, are we working partnership with people? And um, I said, well... Back to the earlier conversation about um, if we are the ones to define partnership and we seek affirmation of that, we probably get it because people will tell us exactly what we want to hear. 
I think organizations have to develop very strong antennae with the people that they work with, uh, both on the supporting side as well as in sort of the, dare I say, the beneficiary side of what, what drives them, what are their hopes and fears, and how can we make sure that they can give feedback and they can influence our decisions in a way that is not tokenistic, that is not uh, paying lip service to a notion of partnership, but that deepens that understanding of partnership. If, if people are given the opportunity to provide feedback in a way that does not jeopardize their, their, their future sustainability or something like that, it, it works. We worked a lot with um, the humanitarian standards issue around what, what can people expect when we come to their assistance. And I've learned from that that even the most disempowered victim of a disaster is capable of expressing what they need, but we may need to remove a lot of obstacles and we may need to prov provide a lot of different means by which they can express that. Um, so if we rely on, a, on, a, on an emailed questionnaire to our partner saying, what do you think about our partnership? Then you, you, you're not doing a good job. But if you're really investing time and effort in listening, that I think would help us to ultimately become more sensitive to, to real needs and it might also unleash much more energy from the people we seek to serve, whether they are a different ethnic or mm -hmm. national background or similar. That doesn't matter even in our own society. We find that people at the bottom of the heap are, are, are not listened to, are not listened to carefully. And we make it's because it's easier to make assumptions about them. I have one question as a follow-up for, for you, uh, Paul, is that if I listen to you carefully and how an NGO should interact with in the context that they work and the people that they work with, it seems to me that then that will also have implications for the organizational structure and, and the processes you know, within how they work. Uh, to be more co concrete, you know, it, it's, it seems to me then and I'm reading a lot about this uh, lately that the, the you know the pyramid structure you know will not work that you also have to look at uh, you know much more self management within organizations and you know yeah. um came famous because of this buitenzorg in the Netherlands uh, way of doing healthcare systems you know where there was much more power given to um the nurses uh, themselves and and um yeah so what are your thoughts there yeah, I, th I, I, I agree with you that sort of this, uh, one of the biggest blockages is this pyramid that we all have in our heads, sort of that the decision is all ending up at, 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 at the, the summit of the pyramid and at the bottom, the closer you get to the bottom, the, the less power you, you have. Um, in my own experience, and what I've been trying to achieve is and get, getting decision making more as close as possible to the point of impact so where possible bring it close to the uh, point of impact which in in my work meant looking at 
empowerment and and not just a bit of tokenism tokenism here, but serious decision making power devolved down the down the down the down the pyramid. But that can only happen in an organization where accountability is celebrated, where accountability is meaningful, where accountability applies to all levels, not just at the, 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 the sort of the implementing level, but accountability also applies to the, the senior level. And then gradually you may see a transformation away from a pyramid towards interlocking circles and overlapping circles. And we worked quite hard with a group of like-minded people in Christian Aid on what we call the global partnership. I think we were ahead or we were too far ahead of where the organization was prepared to go. And in the end, we failed to get our governance on board because for them it was, we are held accountable by the laws of this country. We are held to account um, legally um, and it was too threatening to think of letting go of some of that power. And it is not easy to do that, given the legal frameworks within organization, within which organizations have to operate. So I don't, ha I don't have any easy answers to offer, mm -hmm. but it, it's an important step to, first of all, this, this, this notion of decision-making close to the point of impact. Mm -hmm. That is true in healthcare, that's true in development. Mm -hmm. um, it's about uh, strong lines of accountability uh, with multi multiple directions, not just in one way. Accountability towards stakeholders and accountability towards sort of the, the, the legal side of governance, but uh, also accountability to employees. Um, and, and showing that, that you mean business then hopefully over time we can find ways to work within legal frameworks without the fear of the moment we we let go of a bit of power we are we've lost control we've lost control over everything and therefore uh, we we are in breach of our legal responsibilities to to be good governors of of the resources that are entrusted to us it's it's not an easy one, but I, I wish more organizations struggled with it a bit more openly mm -hmm. because I see a swing in the opposite direction of reconcentration of power, and it's wrong. I think it's mm -hmm. profoundly wrong. Yeah. Great. I have a couple of uh, quick questions for you. So, so if you can try to, to answer them relatively quickly. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, this is a spin-off of my 100-mile walk. Why would you walk 100 mile in a week? For which cause? Well, at least I can say I have walked close to 100 miles in one week. And it was mm -hmm. in 2007 yeah. where we did the Carbon March across Britain and I joined with uh, members of my management team. We all joined uh, a few for, for a few days while there was a core of people that who walked from the north of Scotland to London via all parts of the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And I walked from Birmingham to Hereford over a week. 
and that was for climate change. But that was walking with others. Mm-hmm. You get good conversations going when you're walking with others. Yeah. Um, and then every time when we arrived somewhere in the evening we would have um, we would have discussions with local groups with Hmm. churches with volunteers with um, coalitions that made it really worthwhile yeah and um, I'd happily walk again if I knew that um, there would be sort of the, the possibility of having some impact for me, it comes close to the concept of pilgrimage, mm-hmm. sort of doing things with other people where you have a goal in mind. It might be a much bigger goal, but it's not the arriving that matters most. It's the, the journey the that journey. really matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that happens most of the time. And the last two years have been a little bit different. Uh, is, is, you know, that I'm accompanied or part of the, the journey by other people and you talk about a, a number of things and then visiting local food banks, shelters, etc., or projects of CWS. So yeah. I totally agree with you there. Um, are you an optimist or a pessimist, Paul? Um, I consider myself an optimist. Okay. But I know I have my moments that I struggle with that. I know it when I switch up the news because there's just too much bad news around. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are not... Uh, going well what what are you worried most about at the moment talking about uh... Uh, the combination of things the way that political systems are developing here in the uk post brexit and but also in the us uh, well at least uh, we, we, we managed to or you managed to get rid of trump for now but uh, he might be waiting in the wings to come back i mean th- that man did so much damage to to the credibility of the United States as as a as a global leader, um, I, I worry about those things. But ultimately, I worry most about climate change and the sort of the environmental destruction that is happening. It can keep me awake at night. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you you also have to look at where you see signs of hope, and that sort of doesn't do away with all the worry but certainly yeah I, that I, in the end i still end up with hope and i think it's a profoundly christian thing to live with hope that you just don't accept the world as it is you mm. accept the world, world you you look for the world as you want it to be and you work for the world as you want it to be you don't uh, sort of resign to the fact that there is no point because everything is miserable so that that i hope will stay with me and and where what where do you see that at the moment still that hope most concretely? It was easier when I was working because we would meet regularly with people who are really who had the the worst lot in life, and yet they were proud to show me what they were doing. I, there was one encounter I will oh that will always stay with me. Uh, after two years after the tsunami in South India, meeting up with the a Dalit a woman who sort of was elderly uh, who described to me how she was now a person because she didn't believe initially that she was a person, but she had her name written down and she was now the owner of her house. And she said, now I'm a person. And that came with that confidence and that came with that believe I can change things, I can change things for the better. 
And if you deal with the manual scavengers in India and you see their lot, and you see how enthusiastic they are about the future for their children and that they are really fighting for a better world, then who am I to worry about the minor inconveniences that I have to confront in my life? But again, um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I need to work hard to see that and to remind myself of the fact, look, uh, you have no right to be distraught. You have no right to be um, giving up because other people are not giving up. So, yeah. Mm. And and to to come back to to you know what you said while you were still working, that was easier. I, I did do a number of of interviews for my organization, seventy fifth anniversary, and I I have to say. Um, most you know many of of the most fruitful ones where we're you know with with board members ex-board members and ex-staff who were retired but you know mentioned something that you also alluded to is that you know when you don't work anymore you know how do you keep that connection while the, while there is so much there are lessons learned and still so much to contribute so i i'm thinking a lot about this maybe not only because of i'm getting slowly older as well but uh, but really because i i think how do you how do you how do we continue as a society to, to cherish that and to, you know, make linkages with this younger generation that I think um, would be helped by, by these different perspectives. So that's just my, my sidebar on this. A total different question, uh, Paul, is I, I love music, so I always have a music question as well. If I ask you to mention a song or a piece of music that for a big part embodies who Paul Valentine is, what yeah. piece of music or song would that be? Well, after some reflection, I came up with uh, the song Jerusalem by Steve Earle. He's a Texan, uh, his background is mm -hmm. in country and Western, and it's certainly not my type of music, but he produced an album uh, sort of 20 years ago called Jerusalem, and that is all on issues, progressive issues, and it's just very refreshing. Even when I listen to it now, I it just lifts me up. And this song, Jerusalem, I think summarizes in many, many ways what, what, what I feel I stand for and what I would fight for and a feeling that I believe I share with a lot of other people. So that one, I, I if, you, if you don't know it, listen to it, you, you probably get it the moment that you hear that. It's, it's beautiful. Great. And and I don't know the song, so but I just to to uh, remind the listeners, you know, we made a, a Spotify uh, a playlist, so all the songs that have been picked by my guests uh, are mentioned, unless you know it's not available on on Spotify, of course. Um, my, my last question to you, uh, Paul, is any message, invitation, or question for the listeners? Don't don't allow yourself to be determined by sort of the the new cycle that we are all witnessing around us keep that perspective of another world is possible and um, fight cynicism because the moment we become cynics the moment we become very cynical about what's it what's the point of doing things uh, we talk each other down and I think sort of the opposite of that in my, in my experience, in my personal faith is certainly the Christian message. 
but equally I believe it is true for uh, people of different faiths. Um, I, I believe that the great religions of the world are the best medicine against a cynical attitude about why are we here on earth and um, or it doesn't make any difference anyway that is sort of my with my whole being i fight that kind of uh, thinking it sounds a bit too deep and too too all encompassing perhaps but that, that's what i feel quite strongly no th thank you i i i think the listeners will will appreciate it um you know, we, we know each other for quite a long time and we often have conversations, but I, I, you know, every time I speak with you, there is, you know, I learn a, a new piece, you know, about I didn't know. So I, I really appreciate that. And, and um, you're always very thoughtful as well. So I would like to thank you for, for the conversation and, and um, wish you all the best with, you know, uh, I, I know you're working on, you know, a possible next chapter or a paragraph in, in, uh, in your life so so good luck with that thank you it was uh, a privilege to to be given this platform and uh, i hope people enjoy it and uh, good luck with your ongoing mission thank you uh, paul for listening to walk, talk, listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. I just finished the 10th 100 mile walk and I really encourage you to check out our website 100mile.org to see how you can still contribute to this campaign. Thank you.